This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with British philosopher A.C. Grayling. Anthony is Master of the New College of the Humanities in London and a supernumerary fellow of St Anne's College at Oxford. He joined me to discuss his new book, The History of Philosophy. We explored ancient philosophy as well as making a detour through Brexit. Without further ado, I'm going to now speak with the wonderful Anthony Grayling, or AC Grayling, as you may know him from his books. Anthony and I sat down uh, in 2017 in about, I think it was April, perhaps, to discuss a few of his um, areas of interest, including The Origins of Humanism, The Age of Genius, which is one of uh, his books from 2016, and also War and Inquiry, which was from 2017. And uh, we had such a wonderful response to that discussion that uh, I was very excited to see that he's back in Australia to share his ideas and uh, also share some of his knowledge with the rest of this country. We're going to be in particular talking about his new book, The History of Philosophy, which has just been released recently. I've uh, seen it in readings, of course, and many other bookstores. And uh, it is a pretty weighty, literally, and in-depth, really, detailed look. I mean, certainly it's pretty hard to fit uh, the whole of philosophy, or at least the, the highlights of it, into one book. So um, there's only so much one would be able to do. But uh, we're going to try and distill some of the great findings and ideas that Anthony explores in this book for you. And I hope you do enjoy this chat. So I welcome now Anthony Grayling, AC Grayling, who joins me and uh, he's on the phone and uh, is a, as I should mention, a professor of philosophy and uh, has a number of other roles which will come up in the course of this interview. Hi, there. Hi Amy, hi, how are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you doing? Oh, very, very well and very delighted to be back in Australia. I love being here. Yes, it does seem like you have um, fairly frequent trips. What in particular do you like about Australia? Well, I should mention that uh, my brother lives here. He lives in Sydney. So, um, but because I, I, I tend to be uh, a little over prolific on, on the book front, <laughs> I've always got a book that I can bring to the literary festivals here, which I, I love to do, um, get an opportunity to travel around a little bit, to meet lots of people here. Uh, it's really very, very refreshing. I mean, I know, you know, when you live in a country, you think well, you can see all the faults and difficulties and so on. But when you're a visitor, to a, particularly to a place like Australia, which has so many good things about it, it it's really... It's really wonderful and at the moment I can tell you it's really wonderful to be as far away as one can be from the United Kingdom. Yes, uh, I definitely could understand that. Uh, I interviewed Owen Jones from The Guardian in person, actually, a couple of months back and uh, just aired his interview last week. And uh, he had some pretty strong words to say about uh, British politics as well. So I hope we can pick up on some of what he raised with you a bit later in this interview, because I think it is fascinating your involvement um, in these campaigns to stop Brexit and it would be great to discuss that even further. Yeah, good. Good, good, good. Well, let's dive straight into the history of philosophy. This book clearly is a very long-term project and has obviously come to fruition now. What 
provoked you or made you think that you might want to conduct a wide-ranging history of a philosophy? And I must say, not just uh, Western philosophy, there is a broad range of thinkers in this uh, this book. What really drove you to do this? Because as we know, um, a number of people have, I guess, attempted to distill some of these great thinkers in various formats, and it comes with its own set of challenges. Indeed it does, yes. Well, of course, the, uh, the, the philosophy throughout its history has been much more for the general interested uh, um, you know, reader. Most people are quite concerned, in a way, to make sense of life and to make sense of the world that we're in. And they would very much like to um, listen to and then become a participant in conversations about, you know, what exists, uh, whether there is a a meaning or a purpose to individual existence, questions about the good, questions about the nature of society. And so right from the very beginnings of uh, philosophy, this has been an important part of the overall conversation. Now, admittedly, a few of the great figures in philosophy have... um, gone so deep into their subjects that they become very technical and recondite. But this is something that everybody can be interested in and perhaps should be interested in. So to to survey this wonderful conversation that humankind has had with itself about all the great questions that matter to us in a way that is clear and accessible and provides a really good platform to anybody who wants to go deeper into it. That, that, that's something which I think is a, is a very worthwhile motivation. So for a long, long time now, in fact, the book itself it takes about 10 years to write as a sort of background project while I've been doing other books as well. But really, it's the kind of distillation of, of a lifetime's interest and commitment both to philosophy itself, but also to the teaching, to the communication of philosophy. Indeed, and uh, you are the master of the new College of the Humanities in London and have a range of interactions with philosophy at an educational level. Certainly from a personal perspective, I know the great value that uh, studying philosophy can give one's life and certainly completely alter uh, one's perception of the world and how one operates in the world pretty much automatically um, when one's exposed to some really interesting thoughts or theories and that certainly was the case for me uh, when I encountered existentialism, when I encountered Plato and his account of the tripartite soul. There are so many interesting uh, theories and thoughts and questions that arise in philosophy that are, as you say, essential to how we live our lives and to live our lives in a better way in some cases. In terms of the educational value that philosophy has, what do you think that society more broadly might be missing in terms of its exposure to philosophy at this general readership level? Because often we see philosophy can be quite removed in terms of its accessibility. You've mentioned their language but also just practical accessibility of one often needing to do a short course or attend university to have true exposure to these kind of ideas yes i think there are two major values really one is a sort of general one which is that when you read about a variety of views of explorations of ideas for example about lives that are really genuinely worth living which are full of purpose and significance for the people living them or in thinking about how best to organize a society so that it is just and fair and uh, everybody can participate in it and have opportunities in it the variety of ideas that uh, you get 
from, say, the public debate at any point in history tends to be a bit limited. But if you look uh, across the landscape of philosophy, you see other perspectives, other insights, other suggestions, which can feed into one's own thinking and help one to be you know, more critical, more uh, evaluatory, uh, and to see some other possibilities. It's always important you know, to have a wider horizon of view about these matters. But I'll give you a particular example. Um, the, the, the great interest that people uh, sometimes find in philosophical views when all that they've ever been exposed to is, for example, a particular kind of religious outlook. Uh, so they might have been brought up uh, a Catholic or a uh, Jew, or they've gone to a school, a Methodist school, and they don't realize that there are these alternative ways, other ways of thinking about the good. One very big, uh, uh, interesting theme these days is Stoicism. Now, the Stoic philosophers of uh, antiquity, of the later part of antiquity, well, over 500 years, the educated people of the Roman Empire and the Hellenic world um, cleave to, to Stoicism, which has a very simple but a very deep teaching. What it says is, with respect to those things that you cannot control, things like earthquakes and tsunamis and diseases and uh, growing older, you must face them with courage. But with respect to those things that are within you and you have some possibility of, of influencing, like your own fears, your own appetites and desires, you should try to cultivate some degree of self-mastery. And if you lived with courage to the outer and some degree of self-mastery to the inner, then, they say, you would live with nobility. And even though that, that seems like a very simple uh, doctrine, it, it's actually a very powerful one, because if you adopted it and tried to live by it, you would live with an increased nobility, as the Stoics say. Yes, and uh, there are a number of quite well-known philosophers associated with Stoicism, such as Marcus Aurelius, who um, his meditations, as you write in the book, was a private diary written when he was with his army on the troubled and dangerous Danube frontier in the years uh, between 170 to 80 CE. It's uh, really interesting that there are a number of expressions of Stoicism in, in its history and you delineate between early Stoicism and then later to Stoicism, which also featured one of my favourites, which is Seneca. Um, what are some of the interesting features of later Stoicism from a couple of those thinkers that we've just mentioned? Well, you mentioned, you mentioned Seneca there, Marcus Aurelius, and also, of course, Epictetus, who was a, a slave uh, and uh, whose um, writings uh, and uh, teachings on uh, Stoicism proved to be very, very influential. It's so interesting to see the range of people from a slave to an emperor who found this a very powerful way of thinking about how to live their lives. Now, the thing about later Stoicism is that it focused very much on the question of how, uh, as an individual, one, one can live with uh, um, a sense of purpose, but also with a sense of, of, of true fortitude, because uh, at that time, um, the world around people in the Roman Empire was unsettled and uncertain. There were uh, pressures, wars, conflicts on, along the borders. Uh, things were changing. The outer world seemed so so fractured and, 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 and so full of uh, uncertainties that the reliance on the inner, on seeking what the, uh, the ancients called ataraxia, which means some sense of inner stability or peace of mind, was very important. And the Stoic philosophy provides that. And you notice that it does so by calling on the resources of a human individual, herself or himself. 
That is, it doesn't call on the, the aid of the gods or, or something external to the individual, but says that each of us, as in an individual, can live this kind of life, this, this life of, of noble fortitude, even in difficult times. And you talk about the fact that it has such a practical application, that it's been utilised by people across the centuries in order to tap into that internal fortitude and have uh, a more generalised peace of mind and only, um, I guess, focus on those things of which are in your control. I've noticed really recently that we've seen an influx of books about how to be a stoic and giving, I guess, a guide or almost a self-help guide as to how how to apply some of the thoughts and ideas of writers, philosophers like uh, Aurelius. I have just saw a tweet by one of our listeners who said she's currently reading his meditations and finds that it is really helpful. What, uh, in your idea, when you were writing this uh, history of philosophy, did you, when you were encountering these ideas, think of some of the ways in which these ideas have affected your life or might affect those around you and their practical application? Oh, very much so, yes. Now, you you remember we had a wonderful conversation a couple of years ago about humanism on your show. And, uh, of course, Stoicism is very much a part of the humanistic tradition. Stoicism arises from uh, a great insight offered by Socrates, who's a tremendously significant figure in the history of philosophy. He himself didn't write anything or publish anything, but his disciples, principally, of course, Plato, communicated uh, his ideas. And uh, one of his very key ideas is that the life truly worth living, the good and worthwhile life, is the life which you have thought about, you've considered and chosen it. Um, he recognized, that, as we all do, that good lives, that is, you know, I'm not talking about a pious life or a life of lots of parties and so on, but, but a life that feels good to live, feels full of achievement and satisfaction, is one that has good relationships in it as well. They, they lie at the very heart of the best kinds of lives. And, and Socrates said, you must, in order to be living such a life, you, you must think about what you can offer yourself in, in the way of your talents and capacities for, 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 for living well, for living thoughtfully, for doing things that are genuinely valuable in themselves as you see them. And this is a, a very subversive view, despite seeming so simple, because most people through most of history have been told that there is a one-size-fits-all answer to the question of what is the good and meaningful life. You know, all the great ideologies, all the great religions have said, we've got the answer and it applies to everybody. But, but Socrates' challenge was that each one of us individually has to make these choices and do this thinking for ourselves. And that is quite a subversive thought. Well, that is the thought that inspired the Stoics. They thought that the, the, the good life, that the Stoical life, is one that the individual works out for herself or himself and applies and uh, does so, again, from within the resources of himself or herself. Mm. I'm so glad you mentioned Socrates because he's a much-loved figure in philosophy and I think a lot of people who read Plato's uh, dialogues really feel like they get to know him in those dialogues, his personality and his drive for being and uh, conducting philosophical inquiry. And many people might have heard the Socratic question and the Socratic method. In terms of what we understand of Socrates and his 
constant, sometimes perceived as annoying ability to reveal uh, people's ignorance or perhaps lack of reflection. What are some of the features of Socrates that to you stand out as being particularly important and uh, in some ways lovable? Well, we we learn uh, most, of course, about Socrates from the early dialogues of Plato, where Socrates' humour, his very down-to-earth approach to things. That, that for, for example, there's a wonderful um, dialogue called the Carmides, a very early uh, Platonic dialogue, where Socrates has just come back from the wars, uh, you know, the Peloponnesian Wars. He fought at the Battle of Petidiae, and when he got back to to Athens, he asked his friends, um, "Who who is the most admired youth in Athens today?" Have to remember that the Athenian the Athenians had a rather different view of things uh, from from contemporary sensibility, and they all said, "Oh, well, there's a very beautiful youth called Carmides." So Socrates said, "Oh, well, let's go along and, and see him, because I'd, I'd love not not only to see why he is so admired for his physical beauty, but I would like to know whether he has that even more important thing, which is mental beauty. That you know, whether whether his mind has a, a, a high quality as well. And so he has a conversation with this youth, and he says." Uh, when I looked down the, the front of his tunic, I, I felt stirred. So he was a very human person, and he comes across as a, a very down-to-earth sort of person. But the really key thing about him was the challenge. Now, you mentioned the fact that he, he showed his fellow Athenians that they hadn't really thought very clearly or thought very deeply about the ideas that they took themselves to be living by. So he would say to people, what do you think really matters uh, in, in a human individual? And they would say, well, it should be truthful, they should be courageous, and they should seek to live the good life, and, and so on. And then he would say to them, well, what do you mean by those ideas? What do you mean by courage and by truth and by goodness? And pretty soon they find out that they were just using the words without really having given it much thought. He himself was keen mainly to show people that that it's important to think these things through and to do so for themselves. That was his great purpose, was to sting people, as he put it, he was like a gadfly, stinging people into really giving some thought to things. Because he anticipated by a very long time uh, a, a remark which uh, I expect everybody knows uh, from Bertrand Russell, who said, most people would rather die than think, and most people do. <laughs> oh, couldn't be any more true, which is sometimes disturbing. It's interesting that you're talking about the youth of Athens, and he very famously met his demise by being sentenced to death for being perhaps a bad influence, supposedly, on the youth of Athens for, quote, impiety and corrupting the youth of Athens. But he certainly took it in his stride and was resigned to his fate. Uh, but it's interesting that someone who was so thought-provoking and constantly challenging people in society for so long uh, met with that kind of backlash at the end. What are your thoughts on that, the way that he died and, and how such a, an important philosopher met with criticism? Well, you see, uh, the, those among his fellow Athenians who um, were in political power at the time of, of his death, or just before it anyway, were uh, concerned um, uh, about the fact that he was getting the, not just the youth, but, but certainly the youth also, to, to think for themselves and to ask challenging questions and to be discontented with the status quo and to, and to ask awkward questions about, well, why, why are you guys in charge and, and why are you getting us to think this way about things instead of that way about things? 
things. Just getting a debate going, just you know, stirring up some discussion and some noise in the society to get ideas refreshed and, and looked at again. And, and this, uh, you know, kind of um, getting everybody to think was precisely what those then in charge didn't want to happen. Think of the comparability in today's China, for example, in the People's Republic of China. The very last thing that uh, President Xi would want is for um, the youth of China to start saying, hang on a second, you know, well, why, why are things organized this way? Uh, why, why can't we have certain other kinds of, of, of um, views about how society ought to be run? He was in exactly that position. He was stirring things up, and for that reason they felt that they had to silence him. And he won this tremendous victory in a way, because actually what they wanted him to do, having condemned him, was they wanted him to run away. They wanted him to escape. They left the door of the prison open. He said, I'm going to abide by the law. Sentence me to death. I will accept the sentence. Mm. It's amazing, really, to think about it. And as you say, the historical context is very important for that kind of view that was held, which is that his uh, method is very subversive. And when you start thinking critically for yourself, you do have a whole range of questions. And I'm interested in the, the fact that Socrates and Plato very much disliked a particular group of uh, thinkers and philosophers. They were also very much teachers of rhetoric and argumentation. And I'm thinking, of course, of the sophists who really they offered their services to teach people in exchange for money uh, the ability to persuade others to any point of view and so you know their whole business as you say is based on argumentation uh, but also as you say they definitely had um, sophistication in their excuse the pun in their method because they certainly understood the content they were arguing to me, it, it reminded me a little bit of lawyers who can argue any point they're given, uh, but also it reminds me of some of the criticisms of philosophy, which always in a university context sometimes can be very adversarial and argumentative, and often it seems like it's argument for argument's sake. What is um, your thought on the way that philosophy is practised in current day when we have these arguments about uh, certain theories and ways of being and asking questions of each other and really um, picking holes in the weaknesses of arguments. Well, you know, um, the, the sophists of antiquity got a very bad press from, from Plato and perhaps rather unfairly. I mean, after all, uh, you know, that was a time when, when people were interested in, in um, advancing their uh, education and understanding of the world, where an ability to be a, a very good speaker, the rhetorical skills of, of the political agora and of the law courts were uh, very, very important to a career. So actually the, the, the sophists were probably not quite as, as wicked as, as Plato makes them out. You've got to remember that, that history is always the, the, the victor's history, and Plato is such a great figure in the story of philosophy that we look at things through his spectacles. Of course, there were some sophists who, who weren't really interested in the outcome of arguments. They made the point, and, and it's a point which a lawyer today might make, that um, you know a, a everybody deserves to have the best case made on their behalf. So a defense lawyer in a criminal case, for example, will try to do the very best that he or she can for somebody who's under an indictment. Um, and th you know th th that, that idea was implicit in what the sophists were trying to do as well. So certainly some of them, I think, were... Um, a little bit unscrupulous, some of them weren't. Now, the, the, the great point that Plato was insisting on, and it is a good point, is the distinction between what he called dialectic, which is 
discussion, conversation, uh, aiming to arrive at clearer understanding or the truth, and on the other hand, what he called eristic, which means, as you've put it quite rightly, argument for argument's sake, just being just being contrary, just being adversarial, just for the sake of it. It's not really interested in, in finding out what the right answer is, but you just want to oppose people just to be a nuisance. And he, and he uh, charged some of the sophists with being too interested in heuristic and not interested enough in dialectic. And I think that's a good distinction to remember because certainly uh, in, in academic philosophy today, again, as you correctly point out, the sheer joy of arguing and disagreeing and logic chopping and trying to refute somebody else's argument can get in the way of really trying to achieve some kind of understanding. But in the end, anybody who's very interested in these great, great questions about, about life, about our world, about making sense of things, will in the end always go with Plato in the direction of dialectic rather than heuristic. Mm. I'm so glad we've been dwelling in ancient philosophy. I know we haven't really left that yet, uh, and obviously the time is getting up to 12, um, so I'm going to shift from arguments in philosophy to arguments over politics, which, of course, there is some overlap. Just finally, Anthony, if people may look at your Twitter feed, they would see that you are very much engaged in the arguments and debates around Brexit, uh, which, of course, I won't even recount for those who listen because we've discussed it so many times, but I'm really interested in your particular involvement in this issue and why it's become such an important point for you and uh, an important cause that you have really taken up. Well, uh, to, to begin with, uh, I'm a very, very uh, committed European. I'm, I believe that the EU project, which is at the moment, of course, it's very flawed. It's, it's uh, you know, got a lot of problems. It's a work in progress. It's going to take a long time to uh, develop the institutions and the integration in Europe, which would um, solve some of these difficulties. But nevertheless, even despite them, it has already been a huge success, principally, of course, in bringing peace to a continent which for century after century after century was riven with the most terrible wars. Uh, and this, this um, project uh, of integrating uh, all the economies of Europe together to ensure that they are so intimately embraced by one another that they, they will never again go to war with one another is, I think, a, a, a triumphant, uh, an idealistic and already successful project. So uh, I, I campaigned uh, in the referendum of 2016 to remain in Europe. Very, very, very disappointed indeed that the referendum was so badly planned. You know, only 37% of the British electorate voted to leave, and yet on the day of the election, a very rainy day with a low, uh, you know, the turnout that was lowered in some parts of the country, uh, it turned out to be a 51.89% vote to leave, and that was snatched at by the Brexiters who have for years wanted to try to take the UK out. So I got involved with the, with the campaign, and I now have the, the very interesting uh, privilege, indeed, to be the, the, the chairman of the coordinating group of uh, uh, the national Remainer organizations like Best for Britain and the European Movement and uh, Better In and all, all these anti-Brexit uh, campaigning groups, especially, of course, the People's Vote campaign, which is a campaign for a second referendum. first referendum, as you know, was very flawed. The Leave campaign was found guilty by uh, the Electoral Commission of um, uh, fraudulent and criminal activities in that campaign. They've been fined and charged with costs nearly half a million dollars worth. A judge in the High Court said, 
if the uh, referendum had not been advisory, it would have to have been voided because of those crimes. So we're now working as hard as we can to stop Brexit. We still think that we can do it. The Brexit is at the moment when you see the news coming out of the UK with Boris Johnson trying to you know, get a no-deal Brexit and to drag the country out by the end of October is a mark of the desperation of the Brexiters because they know they've lost the argument. They know that there's a majority in the UK for staying in the EU. One of the great paradoxes of this situation is that the United Kingdom is now the most passionately European country in the EU, which is <laughs> an extraordinary outcome of this. So we're fighting very hard to do it. And it is something that means an enormous amount to me because the philosophy, the science, the literature, the music, the art of, of, of Europe, of what Europe has done in developing ideas of civil liberties and democracy, spreading those ideas uh, around the world, uh, you know, has been a huge uh, contribution. And by the way, I say that, and I want to make this r rather clear, but not in the same tone of voice or the same key as um, the idea of Western civilization as put forward by the Ramsey uh, Institute. That, of course, has a political motivation behind it, which is not, not a very pleasant or good one. There are wonderful riches in the other great civilizations of our world. Indeed, I write about them in my history of philosophy book, India and China and so on. So I'm not extolling Western civilization uh, for, for that sort of reason. But we, we do have to acknowledge that uh, we, we Europeans have made a big contribution to world history, even though we've done some terrible things as well. So Europe matters to me, and I'm very, very committed in, to this fight against Brexit. And I think but even if a Brexit were to happen, and it, it's, you know, a good possibility, we we'll to discount my wishful thinking here, but it's a good possibility it won't. But even if some form of Brexit were to happen, I don't think it would stick. I think we will be back in the European Union sooner rather than later. And I, on the day that that happens, I will be delighted. I very much hope that you are successful uh, because I can only see the benefits of remaining with the European Union and, as you say, the uh, historical imperative that has been peacetime and Europe working together, which is only a very recent phenomenon uh, in terms of the uh, reduction of conflict and um, the rebuilding of Europe and um, some form of cohesion and unity within it. So thank you so much, Anthony, for your time today and thank you for your passion on both of these issues of philosophy and, of course, the European Union and Brexit. Thank you so much, Amy. Lovely to talk to you. Absolutely. Great to chat again. I was speaking there with A.C. Grayling, Anthony Grayling, who has written a book, The History of Philosophy. It is out now through Penguin Australia and Viking in the UK. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.